The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I know for many of us, it is the end of spring break week. So that's not as exciting as the beginning of spring break week. But for our family, our girls all head back to school this next week. And I know that that's the case for some of you. And spring break for many of us meant really fun things. Um, My oldest daughter got an opportunity to go to Florida with a friend. And uh, we told her that she couldn't go. Not because we're mean parents, but because we spent the week of spring break moving from one house to another. And I know when you think of your ideal spring break, you think of moving. Because moving is so much fun. And I was thinking this morning that if I were her and my parents told me that I couldn't go on this really great trip with my friends and my friend's parents were gonna pay for the whole thing, I would really be mad at me. And I think she has every right because when I was younger, I always envisioned having really great spring breaks and I'm jealous of people who like go to Colorado or spend time on the beach because we got to move, which is a pain. And it is the end of a long process of moving. So since the beginning of the year, uh, our family's been looking for a new house. And so Rochelle and I decided a long time ago that it would just make our lives a lot simpler if we lived closer to wherever I worked. And by simpler, what I mean is that I complain a lot about traffic and she didn't want to hear it anymore. (laughs) So let's just live someplace close to where I work. But the problem is that this next year, both she, where she works, and our girls, where they'll be in school, is all out on like the southwest side. So it just made no sense for them to have to sit in traffic to get to and from, and I had a commute of less than two minutes. So we decided that we would move, and so I clocked it this morning. My old commute of two minutes is now a commute on Sunday morning of 22 minutes, which means tomorrow it will be a commute of 22 hours because it's Houston. But as we were looking at all of these houses over the last couple of months, you know what it's like to look for a house. When you're walking through a house and we looked at so many different houses, like you notice everything about every house. Like which floors are uneven, which is all the floors in Houston apparently. If it's a bad paint job, if you can live with this backsplash in the kitchen, how much renovation would this house have to have? Does this house smell? Do their neighbors have cats? Because cats are evil and from the devil. Like, do they keep up the neighborhood? Like, what's the surrounding? You just notice everything because it's your most major investment for most people, right? So you're paying attention to every little thing. But just this last week, as we were leaving our old house for the last time, I was driving out past our little gate, and I saw some things that I hadn't noticed before. Like, right on the other side of our gate, there are these houses that are just old and falling down, and dilapidated, and I thought, if I were looking for a house around here right now, I would have noticed that. And I started thinking about the place where we've lived for a year and a half, and the tankless hot water heater never really worked right, the dishwasher didn't really do its job as well as it could have, 
Um, there were all of these other little problems. Our, our living room overlooked a lumber yard. So while we got to see the city, we got to see lots of lumber being moved in and moved out. And they would come and cut the grass like at six in the morning on a Saturday. Just all of these things that you just kind of learned to live with and didn't notice. And it's really amazing, just over the course of life, all of the things that you just stop noticing. And it's one thing if it's just the houses on the other side of your street, but it's something completely different when the thing that you're not noticing is people or it's you. So years ago, I was preaching for a church and I did a lesson that morning on fathers and sons and just the relationship between fathers and sons. And there was a guy there named Daryl, and Daryl came to talk with me after. And Daryl's one of those guys, you might just imagine him um, as one of the most off-putting looking people you've ever seen in your life. Uh, he was big and had long hair. He'd always had American flag bandana on. He was wearing ripped up jeans all the time and a leather vest. He's one of those people that you would hear coming before you actually saw him partly because he drove this big Harley and you could hear it like four miles before he got to the church building, just rumbling down the street. And he was also really loud. And he's just kind of a gruff character. Like he, he was the guy that for every church event, um, he would bring his own six pack of beer, no matter what event it was. And it was always Bud Light, so nobody wanted any anyway. So like, this was just him. And so he comes up to me after this teaching, and he says, Sean, I, I told you that I work for my dad, right? Yeah. Well, what I probably haven't told you is that 15 years ago, my brother died. He says, I've worked for my dad. We've built this million-dollar construction company I run the company, like I oversee all the employees and all the projects, like I'm always around taking him stuff and taking care of him when he needs it. And then he said, and the only thing that my dad can ever talk about is my brother. I was in that conversation with him that it dawned on me what it must be like, what it must feel like, what it is like to live your entire life and feel unseen. Like you weren't noticed, that nobody cared. Richard Rohr says that we begin to understand ourselves, come to a knowledge of ourselves in the face of others. And I can't imagine that there's a more life-draining feeling than to feel like you are not noticed. That you could just not show up and no one would care. Or that even, even if you did show up, that it wouldn't matter to anyone that your existence your presence, your contribution to the world, whatever that is, that it doesn't matter. 
So Ecclesia, you know that last week we began this journey of Lent together. And it's the time of year where Christians dedicate to journeying with Jesus into the desert and living with Jesus in the desert. And maybe it's that feeling, that feeling of not being noticed and not mattering that many of us feel like is our own desert. So I just want to share with you uh, one of my favorite stories from Scripture and and then three ways that uh, God can be amazing in your life in the desert. And this story starts in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abram, and he says, Abram, I'm going to make a deal with you. Um, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be the father of a great nation. You will have many descendants, and your people, your family will be my people, that they will be chosen by me. And so Abraham, not knowing who this person is, who this God is that shows up, he just says, okay, I'm in. Let's go. We're going to have a great family. But the problem is that time goes on and on and on and moves forward, and Abram and his wife Sarai They have no children. Like the clock is ticking. They're not getting any younger, but they are not having any children at all. And this is not just like now, where some of us want to have children and some of us don't. And some of us do have children, and then we wake up and they're teenagers and we wonder why we did. This is the time where whether or not you had children was a sign of whether or not God had blessed you, whether you had walked with God. And so even though God has blessed Abram with wealth and servants and land, the thing that they don't have that's been promised is a child. So Sarai comes up with a plan, and she goes to Abram, and she says this. You can see that the eternal one has still not allowed me to have any children. And Abram's like, yeah, I've noticed. That's not the kind of thing that I would miss. Why don't you, she says, sleep with my servant girl? Maybe I could use her as a surrogate and have a child through her. Now I know for you, this sounds weird. And it should. But if you were living 5,000 years ago, this would not be weird at all. This happened all the time. It seems weird to us, and I'm not saying that you should go home and try this, but it seems weird to us because we're reading an ancient story in an ancient book. So imagine from the time that Sarai said this to today, is roughly the same amount of time from today until the year 7019. So life might be a little different in 7019. But this was totally normal because women were property. And that was especially true if you were a slave. Sarai comes to Abram, and she says, take my servant girl. And in this story, 
That's the real problem. My great-grandparents were slaves in Alabama. And I don't know very much about them. And my mother and my father don't know very much about them. No one knows very much about them. Because they were slaves. And you just don't notice slaves. You don't care. I mean, most of us had American history class at some point in our education, and most of us can't name any slaves. And the names that some of us might be able to name, we can only name them because those were the slaves who fought against slavery. This servant girl, who is probably just a girl, 14, 15 years old at most. She's nobody. Sarah says, my servant girl. And, and for those of you who write or read a lot of fiction, one of the things that you just need to know is that when you're reading a book and there's a character in the story that doesn't have a name, the author does not want you to care about that character. They're not even worthy of a name. So Sarah says, just go and sleep with my servant girl. And this is what happens next. Abram listened to Sarai and agreed to follow her plan. After they had lived 10 years in Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took her servant girl, Hagar. Now she has a name, the Egyptian and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. So it's been 10 years, 10 years since Sarai came up with this plan, and they just waited and waited, and they were just trusting that God was going to come through, but it's been 10 years. And finally, they take Hagar as a second wife. Now, now this is interesting, because Hagar, she's not one of them. She's an Egyptian. <clears throat> and what you need to know about this story is that years ago, Abram and Sarai were traveling, and they came to Egypt. And Abram knows, my wife, Sarai, she is really pretty. But the Pharaoh rules in Egypt, and if he decides that he wants to add her to his harem, they will kill me so he can have her. So Sarai, what I want you to do, just tell them you're my sister. So then... He can take you and add you to his harem, and I can live. Now, that might sound weird to you, and it should, <laughs> because it's true. Sarai is Abram's sister, his half-sister. And I don't know about you, but I have a half-sister. We are not getting married. So because Pharaoh's taken Sarai into his harem, God doesn't like this. And so he begins to bless Abram. And Pharaoh, over time, sees his productivity, his wealth decrease and decrease and decrease. And it's because he's got this married woman in his harem. And when he realizes this, he goes and says, why didn't you tell me 
that she was your wife as well as your sister. So take her back and leave. But what's happened is all of these Egyptians have seen God bless Abram. And some of them, looking around Egypt, knowing that things are deteriorating, think, wow, it would be better to be a slave with Abram than to stay here in Egypt. And so they leave with them. It's the same thing that happens at the, ex at the Exodus. So Abram slept with Hagar. It was not long before she conceived. But as soon as she, she knew she was pregnant with Abram's child, Hagar's attitude changed and she became haughty towards Sarai. Sarai would not tolerate her servant looking down on her, so she approached Abram again. This is all your fault. Which I'm sure Abram is kind of like, were you not here 10 years ago when you came up with this plan? And what, what it literally says is, what she says to Abram literally is, um, you're supposed to be in charge around here. And, and what he's blaming her for is not the fact that Hagar has become pregnant, but that he's allowed Hagar to treat Sarai poorly. He says, I allowed my servant girl to be intimate with you. And as soon as she saw she was pregnant with your child, she started behaving arrogantly and disrespectfully toward me. I have done nothing to deserve this. Slow down. Nothing's a little strong. Let the eternal judge who is in the wrong here, you or me. Then Abram says to her, Sarai, look, she's still your servant girl. Do whatever you want with her. She's under your control. So Sarai clamped down on Hagar severely, and Hagar ran away. The special messenger of the Eternal One found Hagar alone by a spring of water out in the desert. So Sarai clamps down on Hagar, and Hagar decides to leave. Like, what's her plan? She's pregnant, and she's going out into the desert alone, and we're not told that she has any water, any provisions whatsoever. She just leaves. And maybe she thought that she was closer to Egypt than she actually was. She might try to make it back to Egypt and find some friends or family there. Maybe she thought that she might just run into some people, and whoever they were, that she was just going to take in with them. But I know some of us have been there. Like, we've been in a situation in our lives that has become so bad, so untenable to us, that we have decided, I don't know what's next, but I'm not staying here like this anymore. Like, I'm out of here, and I don't know what's coming next, but I'm not going to go on with you like that. Like, I'm going to move on with my life. And so she's out in the desert, pregnant and alone. And a special messenger from God comes, and this is what the messenger says. It says, Hagar, go back to your mistress and change your attitude. Be respectful and listen to her instructions. You're pregnant, and you need to go home. Trust me, I am going to give you many children and many descendants, 
so many you won't be able to count them. As a result of this encounter, Hagar decided to give the eternal one who had spoken to her a special name because he had seen her in her misery. Hagar says, I'm going to call you the God of seeing because in this place, I have seen the one who watches over me. So Hagar goes home. And I don't know what that reception was like, but she's taken in probably because she's pregnant with Abram's child. And God comes to Abram and Sarah and he says, I really meant it when I said that I was going to give you descendants and that you were going to be a great nation but you didn't believe me, and they kind of laughed at God, and so he changed their name. Abram became Abraham, and Sarai became Sarah. And in that time, Hagar gives birth to her son, who the messenger instructed her to name Ishmael. And Ishmael grows up at home with his mother and with his father. And the story picks up in Genesis 21. Then... Time went on, and Isaac grew and was weaned from his mother. Abraham prepared a special feast in Isaac's honor to celebrate the day he was weaned. So in the ancient world, a child would be weaned. He'd be about three years old at this point. Ishmael's much older. But a damper was put on the day when Sarah saw the son Hagar, the Egyptian girl, bore for Abraham, laughing and teasing her son. She became jealous and demanded of Abraham, throw out this slave woman and her son right now. The son of this slave is not going to share the inheritance along with my son Isaac if I have anything to do with it. So Abraham got up early in the morning, took bread and a container of water and gave them to Hagar. He placed them on her shoulder, gave her the child, his firstborn, and sent her away. She left and wandered in the wilderness near Beersheba. So Abraham gets up, and he sends away his son. Have you ever been around parents? who are just sending their kids to college. Like I was in youth ministry for 12 years, and that senior year, um, they don't show it to their kids, but parents sending away their first child usually have a mild breakdown of some kind. Anne Lamont says having a child is like watching your heart walk around outside your body. And this may be what Sarah wants, but it's Abraham's son, his firstborn son. And don't miss what Genesis tells us, that he gave Hagar the child. Ishmael has been living with his father in his father's house the heir to everything that Abraham owned. And now, Hagar is back in the desert 
And the first time she went into the desert, it was because of Sarai's treatment. But the second time, it's because of Sarah's instruction. Then Genesis tells us this, when the water in the container was all gone, in desperation, she left the child under the shade of one of the bushes. Then she walked off and sat opposite him about a bow shot away. I can't bear to watch my child die. Well, who could? As she sat there, she cried loudly. God heard the voice of young Ishmael, and a messenger of God called out to Hagar from heaven. Why are you so upset, Hagar? Which seems like a silly question. Literally in Hebrew, it says, what's with you, Hagar? She's watching her child die. Don't be afraid, the messenger says. God has heard the voice of young Ishmael. Come now, lift him up and take him by the hand. I have plans to make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes. She looked up from her grief and saw a well of water not far away. She went over to, to it, filled the container she carried with water, and gave the young man a drink. God watched over him for the rest of his life. Ishmael grew up, lived in the wilderness, and became an expert archer. This is a remarkable story. There's two trips into the desert. And the second one, Hagar and her son, Ishmael, stay in the desert. And I think when we read this story, we might want to note that as dry and desolate and barren as a desert can be, it's also the place where God will do some amazing things. And one of the things that's just right at the top of this story is that in the desert, in the desert you are seen. Hagar goes out to the desert that first time and a special messenger comes and Hagar does this thing that most of us would be really reticent, hesitant to do. She names God. And she says, I named you the God of seeing because you have seen me. God noticed that this slave girl who has gone from Egypt to Sarah's house, who is now in the desert, that all through her life, that God saw her. And the truth of our existence is that more times than we would like to admit, we don't feel seen. That we could vanish and it not matter. That our lives don't make an impression, an impact in the world. And, and there have been people who have been Sarah's to us, who have treated us like we don't matter, that we don't have a name. 
that we're not worth noticing until they can use us. But in the desert, you're seeing that God sees you. And I find it so interesting that one of the reasons that so many people argue that God can't be real is that they think, well, you know, if there really was a God, there are so many big things in the world. There's war and famine and pestilence and hunger and pain. And if there really is a God, then he should be really concerned with all of that stuff. And why would a God in this kind of world worry about me? And I don't know that I can give you an answer to that. I don't know why God sees you, but God sees you right now and whatever joy or heartache, pain or disappointment, God sees you as you are where you are. And I have been there with Abraham and Sarah for all of those years that Rochelle and I were trying to get pregnant and we couldn't. And seeing all of the doctors and her taking all of the tests. And as a pastor's wife, either giving or having to go to baby shower after baby shower after baby shower. But one of the things I knew in that time, the things that I trusted, was that God saw us. And whether God blessed us with a child or chose not to bless us with a child, that we were seen. And right now today, you are seen. But we also know that in the desert you can see a special messenger comes to Hagar and she is overcome with grief and the messenger reminds her, says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a great nation out of your descendants too. And if you hadn't noticed, Hagar, there's a well not far away. And, and this is just part of the human condition. It's part of what we all do, is that there are times where we are so overcome, so overwhelmed with our own grief that we don't see what God has already provided. And so some of us are in a chapter of our lives right now where we are almost blinded by pain and disappointment. But maybe for you, that there are people that God's already surrounded you with. And there are resources that God's already given to you. And maybe if you can just cut through the fog for a moment, you can see that there's already a well in this desert. And this is also amazing 
Because in the desert, you can thrive. Ishmael never leaves the desert. He moves from one desert to another desert. But what Genesis tells us is that he becomes an expert archer. And I don't know how he becomes an expert archer. I don't know if he just ran across an archery clan who taught him how, or he just figured it out on his own. But what if the chapter of your life that is a desert isn't a chapter, but it's the book? And this is the place that God has designed you to thrive and to live. And Ishmael's descendants have become a great nation, that God has kept his promises. Because when we open up this story, when this story starts in Genesis 15, we meet three people in crisis, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and they all kind of contribute to each other's crisis. And they contribute to each other's crisis because they each failed to believe the one thing that God kept trying to tell them. And this is it. I am with you. This is God's overarching promise in Scripture. That I am not over you. I am not under you. I am not beside you. I'm with you. In whatever chapter, whatever season, the greatest promise of Scripture is that I am with you. And what would you do? What step would you take next if you believed that God is with you. It is the promise that Jesus reiterates to his disciples after he has come out of the desert, gone to the cross, been buried and resurrected, that all of your days, as was the case with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael, and everyone else who has claimed the name of Yahweh, that I am with you. May that promise animate your every word and every deed from this day until your last. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.